Okay, today my guest is Professor Luigi's Inveris. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Luigi as a person. Professor Zingales is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Uh, Luigi is a faculty research fellow for the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBR, a research fellow for the Center for Economic Policy Research, and a fellow of the European Governance Institute. He served as the president of the American Finance Association and co-host uh, the podcast Capitalism. He co-developed the Financial Trust Index and is the director of the Stigler Center at the University of Chicago. Uh, Luigi received the Bernasi Prize for the Best Young European Financial Economist. His uh, work has been published in pretty much all the major economic and finance journals, and also in science, which is a huge accomplishment, and in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. He has several internationally acclaimed books on corporate governance, uh, financial development, political economy, the economic effects of culture and capitalism. Thank you, Luigi, for joining us. My pleasure. First question, what did you want to become when you were a child? So I think that uh, when I was uh, six or seven, I was very passionate about history. And uh, I was very fortunate because I attended a Montessori school that really cultivates uh, your passion. And uh, I was in the middle of uh, many events in history. And so, so I remember as a little kid, cutting and pasting uh, the historic uh, meeting of uh, Mao Zedong and uh, Nixon, uh, when Nixon went to China. Uh, and of course, uh, the uh, Apollo 13 uh, uh, quasi-disaster, avoided disaster, and et cetera. So I think that those were uh, really momentous time. And uh, I really wanted to study history. Um, and for a long time, uh, my passion was to, to become a history professor. Uh, but uh, the perception in, uh, in Italy, uh, which has turned out to be wrong here, but the perception in Italy is history professors don't know any math. And I came from a family of engineers, and my father really um, had a, a lot of respect for math, and everything was math-based. And so I thought that economics was the right compromise between my humanities <laughs> passion and uh, uh, the mathematics in the family. So he approves uh, of your now financial background, finance background? Um I came uh, uh, to be interested in finance uh, more um, kind of from the governance point of view than from the trading point of view. I was never a trader. I'm a terrible investor. Um, and uh, so I think that uh, my passion was more about uh, corporate control and, and power rather than about trading. Uh, uh I want to ask you later on about the culture uh, papers you, you you did and how you came up with this, those ideas. But before we get to research, uh, what is something not on your CV that people might find interesting about you? Um, what is in my CV or what is not in my CV about my, it is, myself? It is not in your CV, something about you. 
So that uh, when I was in, um, I think it was in seventh grade, I worked as a bike mechanic uh, during the summer and I hated it. And I think one of the, what motivated me to study is that I'm really incompetent with my hands. And it says, uh, um, I think that uh, uh, it's a funny word in which uh, uh, my wife fixes stuff and I cook. Uh, rather than the other way around. <laughs> She's also a good cook, but I think that uh, my comparative advantage is not into fixing things. Interesting. Uh, if you could uh, do it all over again, what's the second best career path for you? Second best alternative? Um, so, given my personality, I think it's the second best. I, I have a hard time in any other job except the one as a professor. I I always joke that uh, I was forced to do the military service in Italy because it was mandatory. So before came, I came to the United States, I did one year in the military service. And that experience made me unsuitable for any normal job for the rest of my life because uh, I really hated hierarchy, the incompetence, uh, the pettiness, uh, uh, the corruption. Um, I think that I would not have survived in any hierarchy and institution, not, not uh, just uh, uh, prosper, but even physically survive because I would have probably been eliminated by some gangs inside <laughs> because I was uh, trying to expose the truth. Uh, okay. Uh, regrets, have you got any regrets in life? Um, Where do you start? I think I have many regrets, but I think that uh, I have been uh, working for passion. I don't know if you know the, uh, the play, <clears throat> The Cyrano de Bergerac, mm -hmm. is a very famous uh, uh, French play. And uh, there is a beautiful uh, passage in which he says that he works for sort of a uh, the pleasure of working not for any particular achieving any goal, uh, whether this is to be incensed by peers or to be uh, high in life or to be. And um, and I think that I, that is what uh, drove my research all the time. And I think that uh, exposed, I could have uh, um, developed more certain ideas, certain fields uh, that I like to do something and then move to something else. This is not the best way to be recognized and be famous. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, what did you learn from your biggest failure? What did I learn from my biggest failure? Mm -hmm. um, professionally or not professionally? Well, I, I like the personal stuff more, but uh, please okay, do. Okay, so uh, my, my biggest failure is that um, uh, my first wife left me shortly after I got tenure. And to me, it was the biggest failure of my life because uh, uh, family was my biggest uh, goal uh, to have a happy family and uh, and I failed. Um, and so I think that uh, was a introspection of uh, what I did wrong. Even if she left me, I think it takes two to tango. So I must have done something wrong. And uh, um, and, and so I, I learn uh, much more of the, if you want, psychological side and, uh, and my own limitation. I think that was very humbling, but very useful.
Thank you. Uh, what are you most proud of? I think I am most proud of uh, uh, my kids. I was able to raise them in spite of the divorce uh, and have a good relationship with them, which is not easy, especially uh, as a man. We always talk about uh, uh, women being disadvantaged in society, and they are, but uh, if there is one sector where men are disadvantaged is when it comes to divorce and dealing with, with kids, because the presumption are that uh, you're out and... Uh, uh, speaking of stereotype, I remember reading uh, some uh, of those uh, simple stories for the kids to kind of uh, acquaint with the idea of a separation and divorce. And they're all written in a stereotypical way in which the, the, the man leaves the family for somebody else. Blah, blah. And uh, that was not my case. So I thought that it was very um, stereotypical and wrong. Uh, but I, I think I... I was able to overcome that and have a good relationship with my kids. And that's uh, the most important thing to me. Thank you. Now let's uh, switch to research. Uh, and you've written in many different areas, many different fields, many different perspectives. Uh, what does a person like you uh, say to, uh, imagine you're standing in a small village, people are curious about you. How do you explain your research, what you do and why is it important to people who don't read uh, scholarly papers? So I think that uh, normal human being who don't read uh, scholarly paper don't even understand uh, what we're spending our time on. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, the way I like to explain to them is that um, uh, whether you like it or not, ideas have uh, a huge influence on um, the way the world is run. And uh, most importantly, bad ideas have a dramatically bad influence on the, on the way the world is done. So uh, the uh, role of research is to basically mostly to destroy bad ideas. Uh, and uh, and I think that that is a really important contribution to humankind. You also have on your webpage, if I remember correctly, I, I looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you say, I don't really uh, teach a lot of details. I teach the way of thinking, uh, how you should be thinking or formulating your thinking, something to that effect. Uh, when you say role of research is to destroy the bad ideas, uh, let's just talk about it a bit. Um, especially about your uh, podcast, the uh, capitalism. Uh, well, what is that? Well, what are you talking about in that uh, context? So capitalism is a funny um, sort of a, a summary of the, of the idea, what is working in capitalism and what isn't. So I think that uh, most people tend to either embrace capitalism and become uh, uh, part of the propaganda machine or to hate it and start to become part of the propaganda on the opposite side. And uh, uh, I think what is important is trying to be a bit more um, empirical and see uh, what is working, what isn't, and how can we improve what is working and, and fix what isn't. Okay. Uh... In the field, things that have been omitted, omitted context, omitted variable, omitted uh, subjects, topics, uh, things that we have 
not covered enough, neglected. What do you think about a couple of these things that we should do more of? So I always like to say that uh, one of my favorite and uh, least cited papers is uh, this paper called uh, Preventing Economist Capture, where I make a very simple, uh, but I say very important and true point of uh, um, saying, why do we economists think that regulators get captured? Is because regulators are evil people, are corrupt people? No, is because some incentives are in place that uh, end up uh, distorting them tower catering to the interest of uh, the regulated rather than the interest of the public at large. And what I do in this uh, uh, very simple paper is to apply the same logic to um, academic econ uh, academic economists. In fact, you can say to any academics, but uh, since I'm in the field of economics, I apply to economics, how this um, incentives get distorted. And so we academics that uh, are in principle supposed to do research for the benefit of uh, society at large end up catering to vested interests rather than the interests of society at large. And, uh, and I wrote this uh, almost 10 years ago. And uh, uh, I think that uh, it's become even more important the problem now than 10 years ago. And why is because one of the way capture occurs is through the use of, of data. So uh, if uh, <clears throat> I have a monopoly on data and I grant you uh, access to data under certain condition, I have a huge ability to shape your research. And, uh, and in the past, most of the data we economists use were public data. And so that was not uh, that much of an issue. Today, uh, with platforms, et cetera, um, we have many more and very valuable data, but controlled by people with an agenda. And so the risk that uh, our economic agenda is distorted by this pressure is really, really very large. And uh, I think completely ignored by economists. And, and what I find it funny is that um, if I talk, talk to a doctor and a doctor tells me that um, he became a doctor or she became a doctor because wanted to save humankind and uh, they're not very sensitive to monetary incentive, I might even believe that, okay? Uh, you know, even doctors are sensitive to incentive, but at least they have a plausible deniability argument. Uh, but uh, that cannot apply to economists. Economists cannot say that incentives work for everybody else except economists themselves. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, a couple of co-authors, uh, we are now doing this uh, NSF proposal on nationalism and the data that we used for the pilot comes from uh, Twitter feeds and the Facebook uh, writings and all that stuff, which is uh, exactly is pure, pure perfect agenda driven. Then we switched to uh, textbooks, high school textbooks in history textbooks in Europe. Well, talk about propaganda. <laughs> so th th there's actually no. Uh, what is the solution? Because education or textbooks are government propaganda. They are representing the government incentives and perspectives entirely. 
uh, absolutely there is no uh, credibility in Twitter or any kind of social media. And politics is driven and understanding of politics is driven by social media. What is the solution in your mind uh, to better data and unbiased direction to research? I think it's a combination of uh, competition and awareness. So uh, first of all, if you're not aware what is going on, we can't fix it, right? And, and I think a, a lot of my colleagues uh, either not aware or pretend not to be aware or pretend not to understand. And I think that uh, if you don't see as a problem, there is no way uh, you're gonna get a solution. Uh, the second is uh, uh, everybody in some way or another tries to do a propaganda. The question is, uh, number one, uh, do we have multiple sources of propaganda that can compete with each other? And number two, do we have a way to um, assert uh, uh, at least relative truth among uh, conflicting uh, version of hypothesis? And, uh, you know, for some discipline like history, it's very difficult to establish an objective truth. But for others, and we hope economics is one of those, uh, you can at least try to... Uh, have a method to select a good idea from bad idea, or at least to draw bad ideas. Maybe good ideas is hard to establish, but we can certainly establish what are ideas that don't work. So I think that uh, uh, understanding the importance of multiplicity of uh, funding sources uh, and also uh, competition in the marketplace. One aspect that uh, antitrust has completely ignored is to what extent a concentration in the production side leads also to a concentration in economic thinking on the uh, economic and legal, whatever, scientific thinking on the academic side. And uh, I actually uh, started to think about this when I did some experience on boards in Italy, and I realized that uh, in Italy, um, the top uh, law professors are also top lawyers, uh, and uh, the top lawyers tend to work with the most important firms. And uh, in Italy, there are not a lot of large firms. So the large firms own the top law scholars that ended up shaping their legal thinking. And uh, that's very problematic. And one thing that uh, I I wrote uh, in in my book more than ten years ago, and and uh, but I don't think that has received so much attention as it should. Is one of the big advantages, for example, of class action in the United States is not only that compensates uh, the dispersed uh, uh, people who are affected, but also creates an incentive for an alternative legal theory. Because uh, if the only people willing to pay big uh, legal fees a large corporation, the legal doctrine will become a product of those large corporations. Mm -hmm. True. Luigi, how, uh, how does the process work for you? Uh, so you're, you're sitting, you're, uh, your mind is wandering in a state of idle curiosity. You're coming up with these uh, creative things, uh, parts related to research. How does the process work for you? What's the source of uh, intuition? What's the source of this uh, intellectual curiosity uh, for you? 
How do you come up with these great, uh, great papers, great ideas? Um, first of all, I, I'm not sure that I have a formula I can replicate, but I think that uh, uh, I'm certainly driven by intellectual curiosity. So uh, what I, what motivates me to work, what motivates me to keep writing papers, even at an age in which I don't think a paper more, a paper less would make any difference in my career, my life, is because I have the intellectual curiosity. This is uh, the same intellectual curiosity that was cultivated in me as a little kid by the Montessori School is still present today in, in my research. So that's... Uh, uh, that's the uh, the first uh, criteria. And the second, which I know is not uh, the ideal way, but I like to think about what are the, the big problems, the big issues. I first look at the problems and then at uh, uh, how I can address them uh, rather than the other way around. Uh, I think that's a terrible recipe for most people. Uh, and I wasn't doing that when I was a young assistant professor, even like a, a, in, a, in a PhD program, because uh, the, the chances that you're gonna come up, come out empty-ended is pretty large. Uh, but uh, if you do get something, you do get something that is really kind of exciting. So I think that that's, that's uh, in my view, the only justification uh, why we have tenure is that uh, we can, number one, go elephant hunting in this way without fear of losing. And two, uh, we should go elephant hunting without fear of uh, pissing off any particular category because uh, we have tenure. I think that's the, the beauty of tenure itself. Hmm. Uh, thank you. Who had the most, or who, can you uh, can you name the person who had the most influence on you? Who was your mentor? Who was your advisor? Uh, who shaped your thinking in the PhD program? Obviously, um, I think that the, by far the person who influenced me the most uh, was Oliver Hart. Uh, I was his student. Uh, but I think uh, even more than his student is the his uh, way of approaching problems in uh, and approaching seminars is uh, quite remarkable and uh, very linear uh, and um, uh, very difficult to reproduce. And, and uh, uh, I, when he uh, got uh, the, the Nobel Prize, I wrote uh, a, a little piece for the American Economic Association to celebrate his Nobel Prize. And, um, and I think that uh, it's actually published on ProMarket. And I, I spoke about uh, basically being uh, a, a poet that is able to uh, give the essence of ideas with a few words. And I think that's the kind of theory he does. And uh, I think that uh, it's very difficult to, to match his standards. So um, I, I'm mostly a failed theorist because I couldn't uh, uh, live up to his standards <laughs> as a theorist. Uh, but, uh, but I think uh, what he does is, is, is beautiful and essential. Uh, and I think that, uh, uh, greatly shaped my life ever since. 
know, if you compare anyone to heart, obviously everyone is going to be better. <laughs> but uh, how could, I mean, uh, what, what was the best advice you received? Uh, something that really changed your mind, uh, your entire approach to academia, that uh, you know, there are some turning points in life, right? You see something that he does, uh, uh, so, so an advice that I received a bit too late, I, should, I, I wish I'd received a little bit earlier, which is uh, not an advice that um, is very grandiose, but very practical, is that uh, you write your papers to pick your referees. Huh. So that, uh, uh, because... I remember writing papers with uh, people with kind of different, uh, you know, sometimes you write a paper and uh, there's a bit of a conflict on, are you pushing to be more theoretical, less theoretical, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and what you basically get is that if you start a paper uh, on uh, very, on the more theoretical side, you end up having referee that push to become even more theoretical. And if you go empirical, they push even to become more empirical. So in, in your, there is really, uh, you get what you kind of ask for, uh, which is uh, um, something people need to be uh, aware of. Um, I I have to say, I have a pretty bad uh, record of acceptance. Uh, I I got a lot of paper rejected. There are some of my colleagues who say I never got a paper rejected. Uh, I think I got more paper rejected than paper accepted in my life, uh, and. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, some people seem to be able to publish regularly at a much higher level than I think their papers deserve, in my view. And, and I think that uh, they are better at uh, writing for the referees. Uh, I am terrible at doing that. Interesting. Uh, looking at advice for the juniors, uh, junior faculty, uh, what are maybe the top three big mistakes that you see young scholars always make that you say you should not do that? So I think that the first mistake is do what I did, which is to spread too broadly. I think that uh, was a mistake in my generation, but today is a crime. Uh, I think that the part that uh, we're not fully realized is uh, how much bigger our world has become and how much flatter our world has become. Uh, in, uh, wh when I left Italy in 1988, basically no Italian was publishing in the top five journals. And what could be said for Italy, it could be said for most countries in the world. And today you find regularly people from all over the institutions to, that publish regularly. I, uh, I gave a virtual seminar in Hong Kong a couple of months ago. Uh, I think it was the second or third. It was not even the Hong Kong Science and Technology, the top university in Hong Kong. It was the second or third. I don't know. And uh, you found, I found people that wrote perfectly interesting paper I wanted to know about. And uh, I think that they should be published in top journals and so on and so forth. So uh, the world has become flatter. And... Uh, the amount of information you need to know just to publish in the field. And in, uh, when I started, uh, when I graduated exactly 30 years ago, you were going to the MBI in your field. And uh, 
that was it. And it says you, you knew basically all the papers that needed to be known at the time. And today is not even funny. In, in uh, uh, You open uh, SSRN and uh, you have to uh, drink water from the holes. And it's, just, it's like so much stuff that comes at you that it's hard to even process it. So I think that uh, uh, the world has become flatter, which is a great thing for the world, uh, is becoming more difficult for researchers. So I think specialization is, uh, is really something that uh, uh, people need to do. Last question. What's the question that I should have asked you about Evans? Um, I don't know, because you ask a lot of uh, good questions. Um, I think that, uh, that maybe the question you should have asked me is, how did my um, experience in the so-called real world uh, shape my work uh, afterward? Uh, I think that uh, most uh, researchers either never go to the real world or when they go to the real world, they never come back. Uh, and so I think there is a, 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 a huge loss uh, in the economic profession as a result of that. And uh, for a number of circumstances, it is too long to, to mention here. But I had my experience in the real world. I was for seven years on the board of uh, Telecom Italia, a telecommunication company. And I was for a little bit more than a year on the board of an oil company, any. And I resigned voluntarily from the board of any um, in in a noisy resignation. That is something that uh, is rare in the in the field. Um, and uh, and I think that uh, uh, my view of the war changed quite a bit uh, uh, as a result of that. In a sense, uh, first of all, I got uh, much more concerned about uh, concentration because I saw how companies are playing the concentration game and how much money they can or cannot make based on that. So I uh, I thought that there was a very important element that I was missing. And, and the other, which led to my current line of research with, with Oliver Hart is, if you are on a board of a company and uh, what, what objective are you really maximizing? And uh, particularly my situation was funny because I've been appointed on the board of any by the Italian government because uh, the Italian government owns roughly 30% of any and appoints uh, the full board. And then the question is, if I am a board member of any appointed by the Italian government, what kind of objective function am I maximizing? Am I just maximizing profits? If I were to maximize profits, why, the question is why the Italian government even control any, right? And this is... Uh, it would be completely irrelevant to have control. So you need to start thinking about what uh, what other objective you think about, and uh, and certainly uh, you are concerned about uh, geopolitical implications if you are Italy. So should you factor in geopolitical implication in your uh, objective function as a board member? So uh, that's kind of a, an interesting research I developed. Interesting. How is the Meloni's situation going to impact uh, the way that you're theorizing about Italian firms going to change? Is it going to be... Obviously, there's a shift in paradigm, right? 
uh, you're talking about a completely different perspective. How is that going to impact governance in these government-influenced boards and incentives? In, in the, the, the line of research uh, Oliver Hart and I develop is, is trying to sort of uh, uh, recognize that firms do more than just uh, uh, maximization of profits and, and saying that at the end of the day, who should uh, decide the line should be the shareholders who pay the cost of that line. Uh, in a sense, uh, uh, if uh, I uh, pursue a geopolitical goal, or if, uh, if I care about the environment, if I want to pursue some other objectives, um, I end up uh, uh, taxing uh, the shareholders for a certain amount. Uh, because if I deviate from profit maximization, I reduce their income. And uh, I don't think that this is uh, necessarily something they don't want, because um, you and I, an example of people that are not trying to maximize income, try to maximize utility, right? We ended up in academia. We don't maximize income. We maximize utility. As I said, I would not have survived in a different environment. I would have made more money, but I would be a miserable person uh, in a hierarchical environment. So. I maximize my utility, uh, but I also pay the the, the cost of uh, of not maximizing that utility, and and, uh, and so that's a case for shareholders, and that's what I see is uh, that shareholders should be more involved in the in this strategic decision uh, that uh, really shape uh, the future of um, corporate America or, or corporation all over the world. Luigi, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. I learned a lot. Uh, I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Thank you.